0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The first two Democratic debates are over. Two nights, 20 candidates. We want to get your reaction to what happened. The number to call is 312-923-9239. Uh, inherently, because you have two nights and 20 candidates, things are going to get pretty chippy. There was some frustration with uh, the formatting of all this because it turned it out sounding a little like this sometimes.
1: Hold just one tr- moment. Just trust, just trust us, us on this. this. We're
2: going to get to everybody, I no,
3: promise. Just candidates, please. You you know, sorry. We
2: will let, turn. let all of you speak. So, tonight. Tonight. so now it's my turn. So I'm going to hold you to 30. Cool.
3: There were
0: big-time topics that got short shrift. Climate change got about five to eight minutes each time. And there were protesters out there calling for a single climate debate. Uh, Lots of the people involved, uh, you know, were kind of got – Got tight, tight shrift there. So we'll take a few phone calls, 312-923-9239, and joining us to talk a little bit about what's going on in politics today. And uh, subsequently, uh, after the break, we're going to chat about uh, his article in the Jacobin, Why Stonewall Matters Today. Andy Thayer, co-founder of the LGBTQ Gay Liberation Network. It takes an intersectional approach to organizing. Thanks a lot for joining us, Andy. Thank you, Jerome. Um, you know, one of the things that we hear a lot about in these debates is um, free health care, free college, free everything. Uh, how what do you? How, what's your reaction to that kind of debate? Is that well, progress? Well, first of all, these are things that are very common
4: in many poor industrialized countries around the world. Uh, the fact that we don't have them is because we're committed to formal and informal empire and the military that it props that up. And so when I hear these Democratic candidates talking about all these things that any humane person would want to support, you have to say, well, you can't do that at the same time as having this huge military complex and all of them through their votes and their allegiance to a party that is committed to U.S.
0: power on the world. Uh, they, they support that. And it's funny. I mean, there's no linkage to that in, in the debates. There's never any linkage to that in, in the media, really. I mean, that just doesn't... You know, you don't discuss that. We don't discuss the military taking up too much of the to well, and, budget. And-
4: and, and few Americans know that the United States spends as much on its military as almost the entire rest of the world combined and And really, you look at the literally hundreds upon hundreds of military bases around the world, many dozens surrounding Iran, for example uh, you you have to put this together and say it 's no accident that we 've got fifth rate social services, whether you 're talking about public support for education, health care, transit etc. It's no accident. And so the, the, the candidates can promise everything in
0: the world, but their whole track record and their track record or their party shows that they can't deliver. Well, let's play a clip from last night. Here's uh, Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders.
2: Many of your colleagues on stage support free college. You do
1: not. Why not?
2: Sure. So college affordability is personal for us. Chaston and I have six-figure student debt. I believe in reducing student debt. It's logical to me that if you can refinance your house, you ought to be able to refinance your student debt. I also believe in free college for low- and middle-income students for whom cost could be a barrier. I just don't believe it makes sense to ask working-class families to subsidize even the children of billionaires. I think the children of the wealthiest Americans can pay at least a little bit of tuition. And while I want tuition costs to go down, I don't think we can buy down every last penny for them. Now, there's something else that doesn't get talked about in the college affordability debate. Yes, it needs to be more affordable in this country to go to college. It also needs to be more affordable in this country to not go to college. You should be able to live well afford rent, be generous to your church, and literally, whether you went to college or not, that's one of many reasons we need to raise the minimum wage to at least $15 an hour.
0: That's Pete Buttigieg uh, last night at the Democratic Debates talking about free college uh, not and kind of finessing how to pay for it, basically. Well,
4: and obviously not talking about the military spending, or for that matter, the police spending. I mean, in, in this town, we've got the third highest uh, cop per capita ratio of any city over 50,000 people in the United States. There's 650 cities, and according to the FBI Uniform Crime Statistics. So it's not just the the military spending, it's the domestic security spending that has exploded since
0: 9-11. You know, Bernie Sanders is up there and he is saying that the most important thing is to have a political revolution. And um, you wrote a critique of Bernie Sanders and his ideas about political revolution. Uh, Is that that, uh, the solution here, any kind of solution?
4: Well, he he frankly perverts some very nice rhetoric because revolutions are things that people, mainly in black and brown countries around the world, that people have died for and have made tremendous sacrifices for. And yet the kind of revolution he's talking about is elect me and I'll do it for you, which is the quadrennial message of far-left quote-unquote, Democrats, who are seeking to get elected. And yet, you look at the history of our country, you look at the, the Stonewall generation that we're going to be talking about a little bit later in the show, if you look at the great labor struggles of the 1930s, or for that matter, the Civil Rights Movement, black people didn't vote for the right to vote. They took action themselves with their allies to force the politicians of both
0: parties to change. And, and that's really my message, is that change comes from below. We're talking with Andy Thayer, co-founder of the LGBTQ Gay Liberation Network, and we're discussing politics and the first two debates uh, last night. The number to call, 312-923-9239. And Mo, you're on WBEZ.
5: Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. And I concluded from the debates that uh, there are only two people in this country uh, two well-known persons uh, qualified to be president. Unfortunately, neither one of them is a candidate. The first one is Warren Buffett, who declared uh, five or six years ago, I think, that uh, global warming is um, a a, um, a worse threat than the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor or World War II was.
0: Uh, and who's the second? Pardon? Who's the second person you think is qualified to be oh, president? I'll
5: tell you, yeah, after I explain about Warren Buffett. Uh, 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 I,
0: I got you on Warren Buffett. Let's go to the second one.
5: No, I have to explain exactly how this pertains to the Democratic candidates by the standard that Warren Buffett gave. And by the standard he gave, uh, uh, World War II was won on the basis of, that FDR wanted to do do it, and that was by a massive uh, industrial uh, re- revival that spent the 2019 equivalent of uh, seven trillion dollars. After the Republicans had been saying that the country was broke, and that, and.
0: uh, All right. Uh, You know, Mo, we're going to let you go. Thanks a lot for joining us, Mo, and we'll take some more phone calls at 312-923-9239. The idea of a billionaire rescuing us is not new.
4: uh, Yeah, it's not new, but I would point out that an ally of the billionaires, allegedly, uh, Richard Milhouse Nixon, uh, signed into law things like the Environmental Protection Agency dramatically re upped the uh, Clean Air and Clean Water Acts. And that's not because he was a friend of the environment, because he was forced by a massive environmental movement of the early, six, or early 70s, I should say, that forced those kind of changes. Uh, I mean, that's when we talk about the Stonewall generation, we're talking about not just LGBTs, we're talking about a massive uh, environmental movement for the first time in our history. We're talking a massive black power movement, a women's movement, which forced the uh, the uh, anti-abortion Supreme Court to grant abortion rights in 73. Black power movement, the Black Panther Party, through their three uh, uh breakfast and lunch programs. There are other survival programs forced a quintupling of the food stamp program. Affirmative action was signed into law by Richard Milhouse Nixon, an arch racist, <laughs> uh, to an extent that hasn't been surpassed before or after. And these were because massive movements of people in the streets who'd given up on both
0: parties forced these changes. Uh, let's take another phone call. 312-923-9239. Mike, you're on W. UBEZ.
1: Yeah, hello. How's it going, guys? Good. Good. Hey, first of all, I just want to say, hey, Andy, I doubt you remember, but we were actually locked up together at the <laughs> police station in uh, 2003 protesting the Iraq War. And uh, to piggyback on that, uh, a real important issue for me is to putting an end to all these imperialist uh, endeavors that this country just continues to go down. And uh, I was wondering your opinion on Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, her, her performance, I thought, was pretty solid. I saw a lot of online polling that showed she was doing quite well as far as public perception. She was Googled heavily during the debates. But yet it seems like the pundits really played her down. They're doing it. seems like they're really trying to just push her to the periphery, not give her any spotlight. And, again, I know she's a mixed bag. She's got some issues. But when it comes to, again, putting an end to uh, this insane uh, imperialistic adventurism that we conduct with our military around the world. Um, She brings up a lot of good points. I'm just curious what your opinion is, Andy.
4: Well, I I can't say that I know much about her, to be utterly frank, but I think the the basic question is, how are wars ended? And... Uh, the one big example we have of a war ending short of the extirpation of one or both sides was the Vietnam War. And that was where the biggest imperialist power in the world, the United States, was forced out of what was referred to contemptuously as a fifth rate country because the actions, not only the Vietnamese, but a worldwide anti war movement, including right in the United States military. And when the U.S. military itself started to crumble, that's when the generals told. The White House, uh, we have to get the hell out of here. But it was really that movement. And that movement within the military wouldn't have happened if it hadn't had the ardent backing of the civilian anti-war movement. Uh, it was really when people following the 68 Democratic Convention here in Chicago realized that both parties were against them when Richard J. Daley pushed through an uh, a pro-war candidate despite uh, that person. And not winning a single primary, and the anti war candidates winning about three quarters of the primary votes. When people saw that betrayal, both inside the convention, their heads getting busted, they said, We need to have an anti war movement ourselves. And that's really what led to the United States being forced out of Southeast Asia. As frustrating as the ongoing slaughter in Yemen is uh, and the perhaps war against Iran, we have to remember what really
0: stops wars. And it's not elect me and I'll free you. Let's take another phone call. Uh, Noel in Evanston, you're on WBEZ.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: What'd you think of the debates?
1: Oh, I mean I, I think that different people impressed and didn't impress kind of according to what one would have expected walking in
0: so uh, do you but, uh, so you're not looking to, to vote for Joe Biden then
1: uh, no no uh, Biden is not on my list i uh, I really appreciate Warren I feel like she both has the plans and she's been very honest so far I, I believe her when she says what she says that she means it but uh, I did. I did have a question. What's that? So, I'm hearing this sort of lack of enthusiasm for the government uh, being involved in this radical change. So, I have to ask, what is the government's role in radical change?
4: Our opponents. <laughs> So the, 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 uh, No, seriously, I, I, I'm sorry to come off is flip, but if, if you look at the true history of, for example, how the great civil rights legislation of the mid-'60s was passed, it was passed not only in the teeth of opposition from Southern Dixiecrats, uh, it was also uh, – the Republicans, including Vice President Richard Milhouse Nixon, were no help uh, either in, in any of that, that process – that it was really black people uh, forcing the change themselves. The, The historic 63 March on Washington was argued against by the then Attorney General to the Kennedy, President Kennedy, his own brother, who over and over again, urged Dr. King and others to call off that march. To their credit, Dr. King et al kept to their guns. They held the march, and they basically were saying, if you don't allow this march to go forward, it's going to be a march against the White House. And I think that's the true history of how that sweeping legislation was passed. So... uh, uh, you know, really, if you look at the the true histories of how changes were made, for example, in the Great Depression, we had three general strikes in 1934 in the Twin Cities, in Toledo, San Francisco. We had the mass occupation of all basic industry in in beginning around 36. That's how we get the change.
0: And we're going to come back with Andy Thayer. He's co-founder of the LGBTQ Gay Liberation Network, and we're going to talk about his article "Why Stonewall Wall Matters Today." 50 years after Stonewall. We'll be back after the break. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's 50 years since Stonewall. Let's hear about the history of Stonewall and why it's relevant today. Andy Thayer is back with me. His article in The Jacobin is Why Stonewall Matters Today. And, Andy, you know, one of the things I think, I don't know, is maybe popularly thought is that there was... Uh, before Stonewall, there was nothing. Before Stonewall, you know, I mean, it was just the closet and, you know, terrible things were going on. Um, Explain what was going on before Stonewall and why the kind of movements that were there just weren't uh, taking root. Well, there were movements. And the the notion that
4: there was nothing preceding it was a myth that, that arose in the early 70s. But then a sort of an overreaction to that kind of historiography came where it was like Stonewall almost didn't matter. Uh, and both were wrong uh, the fact is there was a movement preceding 1969 uh, the Stonewall Rebellion in Greenwich Village, New York uh, but it was a very tepid movement for the most part, it's very what we would call today respectability politics the problem is not US society but you know really LGBTs what we call LGBT days we're, we're not that bad uh, really we won't harm society if you allow us in the door whereas the Gay Liberation Movement, the Gay Liberation Front organizations very explicitly said, it's not us who are sick, it's society is sick. And not just because of the way it treats LGBTs, but the way it treats blacks, the way it treats women, the way the wages wars. Uh, a whole, it was part of an overall movement for radical change. And and that's really what people, I think, still fail to grasp today is that they turned the politics of the old, what was termed homophile movement on their head. And they were, uh, what would today do we call intersectional in a way that we can't even fathom today when you look at our tired, cliched, Gay NGOs. Um, This was a radical movement. It was all volunteer. It was no staffs, no foundation money. People were holding the politicians of both parties, their feet to the fire. They didn't believe the promises. They forced the change. And we're not just talking about LGBTs, but we're talking about the Black Panther Party. We're talking about the Women's Liberation Movement. So there was indeed uh, a movement before 1969. Incidentally, the uh, the reincarnation of it in 1950 was led by a, a man named Harry Hay, who was a former member of the American Communist Party, along with almost all of his close colleagues. Uh, and then before that, here in our own town, a man named Henry Gerber, who was uh, part of the uh, American occupation forces in Weimar, Germany, influenced by the German social democratic movement and started the first gay organization here in Chicago and I believe it was 1921.
0: Now, that's an amazing piece of history and I mean the politics around it is always seems um, those are that's that's radical politics it's it's radical
4: politics and you see this in the birth of every single movement uh, of of any note it's it's uh, even before Henry Gerber uh, in in uh, in the 19th century in Germany it's 201 it was radicals of various stripes who formed the first organizations who thought outside the box and formed Formed these these groups. Then uh, in the case of Harry Hay and his colleagues, they were purged from Mattachine. Uh, and then as a result, the politics became very tepid, very, oh, please allow us in the door. Uh, and, 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 and Stonewall was and, and dramatic. So, and, and Mattachine we,
0: would have marches and people would dress very nicely. And yes, things, you have to were, be, you be in suits polite. and
4: ties and, and uh, certainly no radical slogans. Oh, let's not muddy the issues with uh, you know questions of class or race or gender. We just want to be good little boys and girls and gain entry into your wonderful Make America Great Again society. Now
0: this get, gets us to Stonewall itself, and I think um, a lot of of people look at this incident at a nightclub as a spontaneous explosion of um, of protest. Mm-hmm. Um, it, how is that true? Well,
4: it, it was spontaneous, but. It was one of several spontaneous riots. I've counted at least four, starting with the Compton Cafeteria Riot in San Francisco in 1966. LGBT riots against these all-too-frequent police raids where they come in, shake down all the, par- the the patrons, maybe get their names published in the newspapers, people who lose their jobs, their housing, their family ties, and the rest of it. This was a routine aspect of LGBT oppression going all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century. The difference in a few of these instances including most famously now Stonewall, is, is that people fought back. They turned this routine aspect of LGBT oppression on its head, but Stonewall wasn't unique. What made Stonewall stick out in history was the movement organizing that happened in the weeks and months after that, what makes what makes uh, the Black Lives Matters uh, protests? It, it wasn't it wasn't so much Ferguson, Missouri. It's what people did
0: afterwards in Ferguson, Missouri. They just didn't take it. And, that, and then subsequently was a uh, year afterwards was the first pride parade.
4: Yeah, first pride parade. But I think it's important to note why is that that people in that particular instance in 1969 did what they did. Uh, I think it was a frustration with politics as it stood before. As I said, there were other riots, but there were particular instances leading up to uh, the Stonewall riot that, that caused people to think, we can't depend on the politicians. We have to do the change ourselves. One was, of course, the assassination of Martin Luther King in in, uh, April uh, of 1968. And then, of course, the 68 Democratic Convention where uh, people got their heads busted in the streets of of Chicago for simply uh, exercising their, their right to assemble. And a lot of the people who formed the the rank and file of the stone stonewall organizations uh, were previously and continued to be members of anti-war organizations or black power organizations. And uh, it was actually their intersectionality that caused uh, a, a huge uh, a sea change in in American politics in that for the first time, for example, the Black Panther Party became the first big organization to explicitly say they're in favor of gay liberation. That's the kind of power that that kind of intersectionality can bring bring, but more than that, even though the legislative uh, gains of the LGBT community for the first few years were were pretty modest, they... Reestablished the LGBT community on a much more massive scale than it had been before, and that community building, in turn, all- allowed the many more millions to to come out of the closet. Um, and, and as a result, we've got a worldwide LGBT movement today, and you can trace it directly back to that organizing in the in the weeks and months following Stonewall. So there's a lot of fixation on the riot, but I think it it is misplaced because it was one of several riots. It's what the People did to organize for their own freedom after they gave up on both parties. That's what led to the massive changes that we saw in the 68 to 1973 period. uh, uh, When we're facing the horrors of the Trump administration, whether uh, against immigrants, Uh, racism. Uh, You you go right down the list and you say, well, we urgently need sweeping change today. Well, let's look at history at how it was done before. It wasn't done by electing someone to do it for us. People did it for themselves. And there were particular historical circumstances like the 68 convention that, that, that drove people in that direction, but it was that independent politics and that
0: mass organization that did it. I'm talking with Andy Thayer about his article in The Jacobin, Why Stonewall Matters Today. It's 50 years since Stonewall. And I wanted to you to say something about uh, the ebb and flow of some of these movements. Uh, you talked about the environmental movement, the anti-war movement, the uh, civil rights movement, um, the, the gay liberation movement. They They, they kind of – they don't move – in, with the same speed and and some go faster than others and the environmental movement immediately got results with Richard Nixon as you were saying earlier but the gay liberation movement took decades to get results really
4: well a lot of a lot of it was that we had to build a community first a base of support and it's interesting I've talked to some veterans of the anti Anita Bryant movement um, Anita Bryant for those who don't know was the uh, save our children Crusader against a uh, Equal LGBT rights legislation. And she was a former Miss America and spokesperson for Minute Maid Orange Juice. There you go. <laughs> but she she was going on a tear in the late 1970s. And uh, all sorts of what, what pro-LGBT rights legislation there was at the time was rapidly being repealed. Um, and it was... I talked to some veterans of that movement, and they said our movement was virtually dead. There almost wasn't going to be a Chicago Pride Parade that year until the radicals again say, hello, we've got to get going here. Um, And I I point to that uh, movement because it really illustrates the value of change from below versus change from above, because Anita Bryant got her start when uh, LGBT activists in Dade County, Florida, passed a, a what they called a human rights ordinance, I believe. And because they did it, it was a backroom deal, very quiet. Uh, it was used as a cause celebra by Anita Bryant and her cohorts to start a huge backlash, the so-called Save Our Children from the Gays campaign. And it really wasn't until that movement rolled into California with something known as the Briggs Amendment, that uh, a movement from below uh, stopped it, and and we won a referendum.
0: Now, what's the lesson for today? What what is the the upshot here that we should take from this? That that change comes
4: from below. As tempting as it can be to leave it to someone else to do for it, do it for us. I mean, I'd all like to, you know, go home, watch television, be on the beach and so forth. And, and that's all fine and good. We should do that. But we have to not put our faith in the politicians, even if they're totally well-meaning, even if they have all the best rhetoric in the world to make the change for us, because that's not how change has been made,
0: whether in the LGBT community or any community in the past. So if you are a true student of Stonewall, Stone- Stonewall, you would say, well, I... I am going to help the homeless. You've been very active in in helping the homeless recently. You have been active in pro-Palestinian issues. You have been active uh, across the board. The full spectrum of rights will get your attention if you are in the right place.
4: Yes, and, and, and obviously you, you need to respect the, the leadership of the. – I'm not Palestinian, but you have to respect the leadership of, of of the communities who are on the front lines of those struggles and support them in uh, their direction. But uh, we need to be uh, intersectional in the way that the Stonewall movement was. I mean there's going to be a lot of uh, – there already is a lot of hype about 50 years of Stonewall and so forth. And I would just say to your listeners, Jerome, honor the power politics of that movement that gave it its power, the power to make sweeping, rapid change. Uh, That's what so many Americans demand today, but they're not going to get it from the candidates. Look to how change was made in the past. Look to how Stonewall, truly honor Stonewall and those activists who sacrificed
0: so much by looking at how they made the change. Andy Thayer is co-founder of the Gay Liberation Network, and he is the author of the article in The Jacobin, Why Stonewall Matters Today. It is well worth your time. Thanks for joining us, Andy, and it's good to see you. Wonderful to be here, Jerome. Thank you so much for your show. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport with Nari Safavi, and we'll continue in this vein, and we'll talk about the new Steppenwolf production, Miss Black for President. Stay tuned. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Before the break, we were talking about the real meaning of Stonewall, and we are going to continue in that vein now during Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have a good time on the weekend. And Nari Safavi, our global citizen friend, is here. Nice to see you, Nari. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. What's our one recommendation for this week,
6: Nari? Uh, One recommendation is that this is the end of Pride Week, and there is really a great opportunity to witnessed something interesting over at Steppenwolf Theater. It was a show that I found thoroughly entertaining and appropriate for this time of the year.
0: And with us is Terrell Alvin McCraney, and he's the actor and playwright who co-wrote and stars in Ms. Black for President, and he wrote the screenplay to the Barry Jenkins-directed Moonlight film, and it's a great pleasure to have you. Thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me this morning.
0: Tell us why you wanted to do this project. I imagine there are a lot of projects you could have done, but you chose Ms. Black for president.
3: Ms. Black chose us. Uh, Joan Jett Black is embodied by Terrence Allen Smith, who is a Chicagoan, native Detroit, but lived in Chicago for many years, and was a queer activist with Queer Nation here in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And Tina Landau, who conceived the project and also is a Steppenwolf Ensemble member, wanted to work with me to create a project that was both about who we are today um, and who we're trying to be and what our politics say about who we are, how we identify. Both of us identify as queer artists. And we had some trouble finding existing pieces. And what was scary and also exhilarating is that uh, on a whim, Tino was looking through historical references to queer movement in Chicago queer activism in Chicago, on the streets of Chicago, and found this compelling story about how Terrence Allen Smith, along with Queer Nation and ACT UP, decided to run for mayor of Chicago against then-Mayor Dick Daly, and then use the failed campaign, though great notoriety of that time, to run for president of the United States in 1992 against George Bush I, and I think that one of the most brilliant things about that is that here is a person who is living through the AIDS crisis that's happening on the streets, uh, is living through moments of uh, erasure, and decided to make a name for themselves and their community by smiling and going out and bringing attention to queer issues. I'd lived in Chicago since 1999. I'd been a part of Steppenwolf since 2009. And had never heard of this story.
6: I bet a lot of people still haven't. Yeah. It was news to me, actually, and it was an interesting discovery. And a lot of your play is set at the 1992 Democratic Convention. And as opposed to it being necessarily a critique of the right-wing America, at times it's a critique of people who think of themselves as progressives. (laughs) I'm really intrigued by that. Is that what you were kind of going for, kind of self-critique of the progressive movement? Where Queer
3: Nation, in all of its heyday and its strength, was really trying to provide voice for the voiceless. Yeah. And at that time, no one was listening. Right, left, middle. No one was listening to the fact that there were bodies dying, um, that there were people dying, that there were lives being lost, um, that there were families being torn apart. And in order for that to happen, it needed not to decide aside. The binary wasn't going to work. That's the whole point of queerness in the first place, that the binary doesn't work for it. Um. There is no left or right. There is no black or white. There is only queer. And the fact that there are people who don't fit on either side. And so the piece critiques in the way that at the times critiqued. The Democrats nor the Republicans were paying attention at that time. Nobody had given full weight to this epidemic. In fact, one of the rising problems in the moment, we talk about it a bit in the play, is that the then governor, um, Bill Clinton, wasn't going to mention AIDS in his speech. right? And ACT UP and Queer Nation found out about this and were livid because, again, here is a moment where this person is supposed to be a progressive, supposed to be listening, supposed to be giving voice to the voiceless and may not. Yeah. Um, ultimately, that speech does include a reference to HIV and AIDS. But even that one moment was a moment where, again, these people, their lives and the struggle that they were living through might have been erased
6: and there was I remember from historical memory that initially the Clinton campaign was very much uh, uh, you know playing with the gay movement and kind of like showing some sort of friendship, but then at the end, people like David Mixner and everything felt they were betrayed by him. It does kind of come through at that point in the play. Tell me a little bit about your creative process. You seem to be striving for being a play, a theatrical work, yet also kind of a work of activism and historical recollection with a lot of poetic liberty taken throughout. And at the times also you're trying to be humorous and be funny.
3: Well, it's interesting because my background in work and most of my work comes from a queer, uh, agiprop, guerrilla-type theater. When I was a kid, when I was about 13 or 14 years old, I was in a group theater that did activism theater, meaning we would go throughout the community and spread the message of HIV and AIDS awareness and prevention to other young folk uh, through theater on the street. So we would do scenes that had to arrest the audience's attention for two or three minutes And then allow them to keep passing by and not get arrested by the cops, which we almost (laughs) did many times. Um, And so I grew up in a background of activism that is theater. Terrence Allen Smith is an actor Uh and was an actor in Chicago and was using those same theater devices to gain attention and activism. Um, And Tina Landau, her career uh, has spanned 20 to 30 years of doing just that creating moments or creating theatrical events that fit into various circumstances. She created a Stonewall, a celebration of Stonewall, actually on the pier. And people to this day come up to me and tell me about it. I mean, I was far too young to see it. But they talk about how recreating that night was such a part of how queer theater works, that it can happen anywhere, that it doesn't need to be uh, moored in a certain way. And I think for us, we wanted to really investigate what that meant to enliven Terrence's theatrical world, We call it a theatrical event because the moment you get off of the elevator, you are in a different space and time. You are in the expressionistic view of Terrence Allen Smith, and the times that he, they were living through in order to really get attention. And so some of that is done with a lot of humor because Terrence has a lot of humor. Some of that is very shy and intimate because Terrence is very shy and intimate. Some of that is very brass and almost a kick line song because Terrence wrote a song and sang it through Chicago trying to win mayor of Chicago. I mean, those elements all come together in that way because we really wanted to explode that experience in a celebration.
0: We're talking about the play Miss Black for President. It is at the Steppenwolf Theater Company until July 21st. Terrell Alvin McCraney is the playwright and actor who co-wrote and stars in Miss Black for President, and he wrote the screenplay to the Barry Jenkins-directed Moonlight film. So when you put people into this milieu in the Steppenwolf Theater, what's that like?
6: How did you react, Nari? Well, it's sort of a very much a party atmosphere when you walk in there. At least I was when, when I was there for the opening night, it felt that way. And the staging is very innovative. You, you know, they've changed things around. The audience is surrounding the stage, basically. And the stage is elevated. And it's almost like a fashion runway, <laughs> that where the play all happens. And there is definitely a sense of fashion and flair to all of it, too. So it's quite entertaining. But yet, it's also a fun bit of activism. It's a immersive?
3: Well, we have to be. It's interesting for all of those listeners who want to. You can run a quick Google of Terrence Allen Smith. Uh, I'm only telling you that because I never did and didn't know this information, but it's right there. You can find YouTube clips of them on the yes. floor of the DNC. Yeah. You can find pictures. In this age of information, that information is right there, and, and at the 50th of Stonewall, our young LGBTQI folks out there really need to know that there's a wave of information that's sitting right there under their fingertips that they can get a hold of. And one of those things is that they launched this campaign for presidency here in Chicago at a well-known supper club. And when you walked into it, you sort of thought, oh, well, this is a normal place where we come and we, we celebrate and we have a conversation. But they had transformed it into a campaign. And that's the kind of immersive surprise we want the audience to think. The audience thinks they're going to come in and sit back and be put behind a fourth wall, but instead they're being invited to be on the floor of a campaign. And what does it mean to hear the platforms, hear the opinions of that person, support them, rally behind them, and see how far they can go? And that's a different kind of theatrical event. And as Terrence relays to us often, um, if you ever get on the floor of the DNC, it's a theatrical event in itself. There are people in costume, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, right? So you've oh, yeah. been, so there are people in costume. There's flair going, there's music happening. Jennifer Holiday comes out and sings a song, you know. There's a lot of action going on, and the theatricalness of that, um, bent through a queer eye, is something that we were really interested in. And we wanted you to feel that too, not just us. We wanted all of us to be there together. When you began
0: this project, you went to Terrence Allen Smith first before you started this whole thing. What was that like? What did he say?
3: Well, it was really important to us to reach out to Terrence first and get their approval, especially once we found out that they were living still in the United States. Because the voice of so many activists from that time, a lot of them have been quieted or uh, have gone on. So to hear from them specifically was important. And so Tina, who, again, conceived this project, found Terrence in San Francisco, (laughs) amazingly, through her sleuth-like work. And before we wrote down anything, she went out and spent a weekend with Terrence interviewing them for, I believe, about 12 to 14 hours. She has like 14 hours of transcript. (laughs) And then poured through all of that and sat me down and just downloaded all of this information. Because I was going to be playing Terrence, I didn't want to meet them because I knew what I would start doing. The brain immediately, when you know that you have to portray somebody, you start mimicking them. You can't help it. You have a mirror device in your brain that starts mimicking a person. And I didn't want mimicry. I wanted to know them by their words and their actions. Was he
0: pleased about all this? Was he pleased that there's going to be a play about something he did in 1992?
3: The initial phone call I remember hearing, he laughed for about 35 minutes. (laughs) <laughs> because he just couldn't believe it. And you also, I mean, this is a person, you all should interview Terrence because Terrence is shy and quiet, but once they start going, they have stories for years that they could tell you about every corner of Chicago. I'm sure of it. <laughs> um, and they just are one of those people that are so shy that can't believe that someone is doing a play about them, but at the same time is like, well, if you're doing a play about me, I'd love to you know, come out and talk about it. And I think has been to the performance about three or four times, Brings multiple friends. I mean, the people who come out to see the play, it's been astonishing. There have been folks who come to our talkbacks and tell us, you know, I was there that night. I was there the night they launched. I knew Terrence before this. And this uh, one patron I remember saying specifically is like this play gets the balance so right because you can't imagine a person who is a drag performer being shy. And yet Terrence (laughs) is absolutely shy. Absolutely an introvert and had to work themselves up to become Joan. And those folks from those times come in and they talk to us about it. And so that's one of the great things about it is that we've got a conversation going with folks who knew nothing about this story, who are queer and out in the world, who need to connect to that history, and then folks who were there. As a queer
0: black man, how do you react to what happens on Pride weekend? It seems, you know, fun and frivolous and people kind of put a backseat towards serious issues of white supremacy, patriarchy, sometimes that are really prevalent in the queer community.
3: I think one of the things that's really interesting about any celebration of a movement is celebrating its finality or not. I think a lot of what sometimes happens during Pride is we, like on Martin Luther King's birthday, sometimes we can feel like there's a finality to what the movement started or birthed. There is better recognition of the pioneers of how we got to Pride, of people like Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rodriguez, who basically are the reason why we have a Pride parade in the first place in certain areas. But always within the sort of marginalized communities, in ballroom community, in rural places, in in places where poverty, color, and queerness intersect, there have been great need of access to history, to access of how the movement was quieted and quelled in certain ways. For example, I mentioned Essex-Hemfield the other day to someone, and people were like, who, who? And even as a 19-year-old, I had to hunt and search for Essex Mfield, who was an incredible poet and activist who died of AIDS-related complications. The access to health, the access to life, to longevity is still a huge problem. And so during these moments, it's important that folk who are on that intersection, folks who are on the intersection of poverty, of racism, of patriarchy, um, misogyny, I mean, even in our play, we talk about it. It's like we did research on the stories of these folks. And in the books, in the news articles, in the quick Googleable information, women are left out still. And now, in this moment, we're finding that we need to be very diligent about, sure, the celebrating of where we've come to, but also how far we have to go. You know, we can't celebrate pride fully knowing that two black trans women a month have died since the beginning of the year by being murdered, right? Not they were ill and they, no, but they were murdered. Those numbers are staggering in a community that is less than 10% of the population.
6: If I may add a little something on that, though maybe at times lacking in this country, on a global level, it seems like this template has been a unifying force. Mm-hmm. Uh, we recently had the celebration of the Pride Week in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. whether you want to call it Israel or Palestine or whatever. And one thing that unifies people around that place, the Israelis and the Palestinians and the Christians and the Muslims and the Jews is that the progressive people within all of those communities unite around the Pride Week and the Pride Parade and the reactionary Jews and the Muslims and the Christians also unify despite all those differences. Mm. So it creates very interesting dynamics. It's not really about separation between the queer people, Palestinians and the queer Israelis and, and it's actually, they all come together around this issue.
3: I mean, the beauty of all movements is that there's a defining moment where folks can recognize their sameness and engage in that way, especially around the word queer, which is a celebration of difference. The moment we don't engage in those differences, problems will arise because I cannot leave my blackness at the door. I wish I could sometimes. And I also need to be very mindful of the fact that I have male privilege in the world and that my female counterparts do not or my non-binary counterparts do not um, or my genderqueer counterparts do not and if I don't make room for them in that celebration if I don't make room for what they need of the access that they need the platforms that they need the voice that they need the specific issues that affect them alone then that celebration is just a ceremony and not an actual ritual, right? The difference between a ceremony and ritual is a ceremony is just for show A ritual is that we expect something to be different on the other end of this. And I think in Ms. Black, a lot of what we try to do is make sure that this is a ritual. We go through this with the actors and the audience every night so that at the end of this, something is different. Something has changed. And that we go out into the world a little bit different.
6: Wow. (laughs) So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, your own background, and where you're going to go next from here.
3: Uh, I'm going to go to sleep from here.
6: <laughs> yeah. um,
3: this, contrary to Terrence's belief, walking around in those heels for uh, for, <laughs> exactly. two, for two hours is, is difficult.
6: Exactly. Uh,
3: Terrence says it's not difficult, that it's not hard. It is. My feet are killing me. Um, but at the same time, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Um, it is my honor to fill in this role uh, of a hero. Um, I get yeah. to play a hero, and I'm proud of that.
0: Now you're to work on David Makes Man for Oprah Winfrey's OWN Network. Uh, What's this project?
3: David Makes Man is a television series that we created for the OWN Network, and season two airs August 14th. Um, We filmed down in Florida. It's about a young kid from my neighborhood in Miami, uh, in Homestead, uh, who gets bused to a magnet school after losing one of his closest friends. The series talks about, you know, that turning point in a young person's life where they have to make a choice between the neighborhood that they know and love and new avenues being introduced in uh, this bust school that he's going to.
0: Well, uh, people can look forward to that, as well as Ms. Black for President, which is running at Steppenwolf until July 21st, Mm -hmm. and it's been a great pleasure to meet and talk with you. Terrell alvin McClaney is uh, the Chicago playwright who co-wrote and stars in Ms. Black for President, and Nari Safavi, thanks for joining us for another fine weekend
6: passport.
3: It was a privilege to be here. Thank you. Happy Pride.
0: Happy Pride to everyone this weekend and Monday on Worldview. Hope you can join us. We'll have John Mersheimer from the University of Chicago. We'll talk a bit about Iran and what's going on with U.S. foreign policy and the presidential election. Hope you can join us Monday for Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.